in our culture today, we mark a lot of things, right? And we have different um, logos. And so we're, go th we're gonna go through some of them, see if you can guess what these marks represent. Go ahead, the, f the first one, what does this, uh, Nike, what does this represent? <laughs> Nike, yeah, Nike, okay, next one. What does this mark? Apple, Apple. next one. Pepsi. Pepsi, that's right, it's not red states and blue states. So, <laughs> McDonald's, yeah, go ahead, next one. Twitter, Twitter. next one. Bridgewater. Yes, that was the hardest one. <laughs> that's our Bridgewater swoosh, how about this one? That's actually an ancient symbol of Christianity, the fish. For about 100 years, the cross was not a symbol of Christianity. The cross was a execution, a public execution thing. It'd be like having a guillotine as the symbol of, of your faith. And so the fish was one of those first symbols. But when we talk about being marked as Christians, we're not talking about wearing a mark. I remember Karis, when she was in elementary or maybe about seventh grade, she came home and she was talking about someone at school and she said, oh, and dad, you know, she's a Christian. We're like, wow, really? How do you know that? She wears a cross necklace. <laughs> like, well, baby, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily, she might be a Christian, but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. You know, it's not a tattoo. It's not a necklace that we wear. When Jesus says we're marked or we're called or we're anointed or we're, we're, you know, we're set apart, he's talking about our character and not about an outward thing. And so today we're going to look at different marks. Last Sunday I looked at the mark of forgiveness. If you missed that, that is one of the most powerful messages that we've had. Go online to bridgewater.church. And uh, watch that, you know, Pastor Ethan did a great job. And then the, the testimony by, by Lorraine at the end, just, you just need to see it. We, we are marked by, by forgiveness. Jesus has forgiven us so that we can forgive others. And we're going to look at a passage in Matthew twenty two thirty four 34, that talks about another mark that we need to have in our lives and in, in who we are. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, so, so Jesus is being questioned. And that was actually a normal thing for a teacher to, to be questioned by others. It was a way of teaching. As you ask questions, he answers. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees were these two religious groups and political groups in Jesus' day that, that hated Jesus. It's interesting because these two groups are kind of like the Democrats and the Republicans today. They had a degree of political power. They, they represented the 70-seat the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court of Israel for legal matters uh, that they did in-house. Um, and they, they were political rivals. They were re religious rivals. They hated each other as much or more than Democrat and Republicans hate each other today uh, in the upper echelons. But there's one thing they agreed on, and that was that they hated Jesus even more. And so they were working together to question him, and one of them, an expert in the law, and by expert in the law, we're not talking about Jason Legg or Jason Beardsley, okay? These are not lawyers. These are experts in the first five books of the Bible. They were called the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In fact, if you love reading legal laws, you'll love Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy in Numbers. But, um, so, so he's an expert in the Bible, and he tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And we talk about 
this verse a lot. I talk about this verse a lot because it summarizes Christianity, right? Jesus has said, hey, 66 books in the Bible, 1,100 and I think 89 chapters in the Bible. Can you summarize it in one sentence? They thought that would be impossible, and how can he do that? But he quotes from the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says, this is what the law says, and that is the most important thing. And, and then he goes on and elaborates, and he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything in the Bible Everything else, all those books, all those chapters, all those verses, all those stories, they are all describing how we love God and love others. That's it. So you say, well, what about Revelation? Well, Revelation tells us that we should love God because he wins. (laughs) And it tells us that we need to love others now because everything is not going to continue the way they are. There is an end coming. Right? And so everything in the Bible is about how to love God and how to love other people. That, that, that's everything. And it's so important that we understand that this is, this is a both kind of thing. This is a, it's like flying a plane. Do you want a right wing or a left wing? Well, I want both. You know, it doesn't really do much good. Or, or a needle and a thread. You know, you got a rip or a tear in your shirt. Do you want a needle to fix it or do you want thread? Well, it's going to be really hard to, you know, you can't do one without the other. Or if you're going to go hunting, right, and you're going to go out and shoot grizzlies, do you want the bullets or do you want the gun? I'd probably take the gun if I had to choose so I could use it as a $800 club, you know, but better than throwing the bullets at them, just making them mad. But right, this is a both thing. And so do you, which is better, to love God or to love people? You, you can't. You can't do one without the other. You know, and, and occasionally I hear people talk about someone who loves God. Oh, he's such a holy man. He really loves God. He, he, he has no friends. You know, he's, he's so opinionated. He turns people off and he turns people away. But boy, he loves God. No, he doesn't. He doesn't love God. If, he, if you don't love people, you don't love God. And it's really easy to say theoretically, philosophically, I love this God somewhere, some, you know, out there. But where the rubber meets the road, if I love God, I will love the things he loves, and he loves people. And so who are the specific people that I love? It, it, it goes together. And so how do we love? And we're going to look at this passage, and, and it says one of, the, one of the ways we love people, which is how we love God, is the proximity principle. It says, you know, Jesus in, in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The proximity principle. It's interesting that sometimes we confuse Matthew twenty two thirty nine with John three sixteen. John three sixteen says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but will have eternal life. God loves the world. The Bible never tells us to love the world because it's too big. You can't love seven billion people because love does things. Love responds and love is personal. God loves the world because God individually loves over 7 billion people. He knows how many hairs are on their head. He knows them by name. He knows their past. He knows their future. He knows everything about them. And he loves them because he knows them. 
but we can't love everybody. You know, this morning we sent off our Food for the Hungry um, little letter. It, it said, open immediately, and we waited a day. My son Daniel pointed that out. Dad, it said immediately. Like, he's so, like, rules-based. Yeah, yeah. He's tattling on his parents, you know. Like, anyway, but, but it, we, we have uh, a lot of you support, a lot of us in the church, we support through Food for the Hungry, um, uh, sponsor children in Chapune and Kambalam, Guatemala. And if you're not a part of that, um, text that number on the screen something. No, um, uh, just go to the Welcome Center. If, if you want to sponsor a child in Guatemala, go to the Welcome Center, give them your name, say, I, I want to sponsor someone. If you're online, you can uh, text to someone in the chat and they'll give you some information about that. They're probably scrambling right now because I didn't tell them. But, um, but so Felipe, I love Felipe. Becky and I love Felipe. He's our sponsored child, and we just wrote him a note, our prayer for you this Easter, and hopefully he'll get it by Easter, but I waited a day, so maybe he won't. But, uh, and, and he's my neighbor. Why? Because God put him in front of me, and then we even traveled to see him after we sponsored him and went on a trip, and we won't have one of those this summer because COVID has just canceled everything, but next summer, I hope to take our son Ryan and Becky and go and see them. We need to love the proximity principle, people that are in front of us, and that, that doesn't mean you can't love somebody in Guatemala, but, but what it means is you love the people God's put in front of you. And, and uh, because we just can't love everyone. And so don't feel guilty if you don't love persecuted Christians in North Korea because you don't know any. And you can't love everybody. And you can't do for everybody. But what God says here is, is he wants us to love our neighbor. He wants us to love those right around us. And, um, and so we need to do that. In fact, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan, and, it's, and, and in the story of the Good Samaritan, he reveals that your neighbor can be someone you dislike or hate or is your enemy, but it's still someone right in front of you. Uh, Bill Freund uh, lives as a neighbor of Gene Pierce and lives right in the community here in Montrose, and one of the things he often says about this passage is, he says, maybe when Jesus said we should love our neighbor, that he literally meant Love your neighbor. He says, maybe we're, we just make this too complicated. Do you love your neighbor? Well, if you don't know any of your neighbor's names, the answer is no. Because love is not this philosophical, vague feeling toward others. Love is a decision to put the needs of others above yourself. And if you don't know someone's needs, then you can't love them because you can't put those needs above your own. And so loving your neighbor, when, when I moved, I shared this before, but when Becky and I bought our first house in Johnson City, 510 Grand Ave, and, and uh, moved in, we had hundreds of people as our neighbors within 100 yards of our house, hundreds of people. We had one neighbor welcome us to the neighborhood. It was this older widow. She came over with banana bread, and uh, she said, I just want to welcome you to the neighborhood. I live three or four doors down on the left right there and, and you know, just wanted to see how you were and, and you have such a beautiful kitchen and 
Like, how do you know we have? Well, I go to all the open houses. <laughs> I've lived on the street long enough that I know what everybody's house looks like. <laughs> you know? And we do. It's a brand new kitchen. Yeah, it's beautiful. You want to come in and see it again? I mean, you know. And so just a sweet lady. But interestingly, she mentioned, and I go to the Evangelical Free Church. And I love Jesus, and I just wanted to welcome you in the neighborhood. Is what are the chances that one of the only Christians in our neighborhood was one of the only people who invited, who who, who welcomed us in? I think the chances are better than fifty-fifty, because that's what what we're told to do and to be. That's what Christians are to be marked by. We have all sorts of different kinds of neighbors, right? You have the loud, noisy neighbor, maybe, you know, and they they bought chickens or something, you know. Or, and and then, then, you have the, then you have the mean neighbor, maybe. Maybe you have the nosy neighbor, you know. Are you known as the loving neighbor? Because as believers, that's what we're to be marked by. We're to be marked by love. Um, the people around you were placed near you for a reason. We think it's just kind of... Random, you know, like who I work with, you know, who I grew up with, who I went to school with, who my neighbors are. I mean, it's just random. I don't know. They're just there. No, God has intentionally put each and every one of those people in your life on purpose. And he wants you to love them. That is what we're called to do. Some people get confused, you know, with this mark and calling thing and and um, I, I, I talked to a man, this is pretty rare, but I talked to a man after a service, I think he was sitting over there, and um, I said, so, you know, that, that decision I mentioned to ask Jesus to forgive you and to give him your life to be all in, he says, have you ever made that decision? He said, no. I said, well, do you want to make that decision? He said, no. Well, what is holding you back? He said, I just can't quit my job. Like, well, where do you work? Because actually two weeks ago, talking to a man in our church, and he worked for a computer company, and he realized that what they did was they, they, they ran servers for other companies, and he found that many, perhaps even most, of their customers were pornographic websites. And, you know, if you, and so he's like, I am against visiting pornographic websites morally, be, not, not just because it's wrong biblically, but, I mean, there's, there's slavery involved in that, human trafficking, objectification, and, and all sorts of exploitation. And, and he's like, not only should I not visit them, I probably shouldn't work for a company that, that helps them. And so he resigned from good benefits, good pay, he said, I, I, just, I just can't work here anymore. And he resigned. So I asked this guy, so what do you do? And he worked construction or something moral, you know, like something morally a Christian could do. You know, he wasn't a spy and, you know, or whatever. I don't know, where does that come from? Um, <laughs> we watched a spy movie last night. <laughs> anyway, and I thought, a Christian could not do that. That is, that is immoral, what that person is doing. But anyway... Um, so, so he, he, he just, he said, no, 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 I work a, a normal job. And he, he said, well, well, why would you have to? Well, that's, that's what it means to be all in, isn't it? To go to be a missionary or to become a pastor. Isn't that what the disciples did? They, they stopped, you know, f being a fisherman and they became a full-time follower of Jesus. And I said, well, 
Maybe God is calling you to do that, but no, that's not the mark. The mark or the calling God calls us to isn't necessarily a job. It's a character. And you can be different and be following Jesus on a gas well or picking up garbage or being a nurse or a teacher or, or, or whatever, landscaping or computers or whatever you do. It's, it's, it's not your job, it's, it's your character. And, and part of that character is, are you going to forgive as Jesus forgave you? Are you going to love as Jesus loved you? Are you marked by Jesus and are you leaving a mark on others? Malcolm Gladwell wrote this in his book, Outliers. He talked about a town in Rosetto, PA. In the 1960s, there was a doctor, and he wanted to study, you know, how do people live long? And so you know all the normal things, but he said, there's something else I think we're missing. And so he went to different towns and villages and got all the, the death notifications and things, and, you know, the government compiles some of this, and he studied the, the, the stats, and he found that this little town in Pennsylvania, it's about 15 minutes south of Stroudsburg, um, called uh, Rosetto, PA, had incredibly long-lived people. Almost no one died of heart disease or anything like that before they were 60 years of age. And, and, and he just was struck by that. So he went to the town and he, and he, and he interviewed and he studied them and, and he found that they had no different dietary things. So it wasn't like they, you know, didn't eat eggs or whatever or, you know, too much cholesterol. No dietary difference in how they lived. Nor did they exercise more than, than what was normal. They were just normal people. But the one thing he found is that they were made up almost entirely of citizens who came from the village of Rosetta Vallefortore in Italy. And so what I'm picturing is an entire town full of Max and Salamatos. <laughs> and they, they did. They loved each other. He found they had incredibly close-knit friendships and bonds and, and, and that there was just a community like he had never experienced or seen. And they were just close. And he accredited, you know what? It's because they love their neighbor that they live longer. You see, when God commands us to do things, and sometimes his commands are really hard, they are not so that God is better off. <laughs> that, that's, not, that, that's sometimes as a parent, that's why I command my children to do things. Do the dishes. And I'm not thinking so that you can be trained to do the dishes when you're an adult. No, it's because my life will be better off <laughs> if you do the dishes and mow the lawn. And, do, you know, and, and part of it is the training, but part of it is I'm better off. But that's not why God tells us to do things. He's no better off when we obey him. We are better off when we obey him. And when we love our neighbors as ourselves, that doesn't actually just help your neighbors. It helps you. It's always best to do what God thinks. So that's the, the proximity principle. The other principle, so the first thing, the proximity principle answered the question of who do we love and then this next principle, the kindness principle, answers the question, well, how do we love them? And we've been talking about that a little bit already, but I think one of the questions we need to ask in every situation is that what does love 
require of me? What does love require of me? And I, I, I did a wedding yesterday that was here, and, um, and it was really cool. In weddings, I always watch. I always watch the groom when the bride comes around the corner. I can see the bride later. I'm like, I'm going to watch the groom, and, and his eyes and his face as she's coming down, like, it's, it's just super cool. And, uh, but, but I'm going to share with you one of the things I shared with them, and if you've been at weddings that I've done, I often share this as well. And it's about the nature and definition of love and what love is. In fact, that, it's the reason why we're calling this the kindness principle, because we, we wanted to call it the love principle, but we, we realized that people would not know what that meant because we don't know what love is. Because I, I looked up, I googled the word love on the internet, and here's what it came up with. Three definitions. Number one, an intense feeling of deep affection, like parents for a child. Number two, a great interest and pleasure in something like he loves football. Okay, that's definitely not biblical love. All right, we know that. Um, he loves soccer. That would be biblical love. <laughs> but not Okay, and number three, to feel a deep romantic or sexual attachment to someone. Those were the three definitions of love. And I went down to four, five, six, and they were just bizarre. You know, they weren't, they weren't any better. And I thought, well, that's Google. You can't trust the Internet. And so I, I looked it up in a normal dictionary. And then I looked it up in like an encyclopedia. And I looked it up in, and I never realized. I have been lied to. You have been lied to all your life about the meaning and definition of one of the most important qualities in life, love. Most of the songs about love in our culture lie about the nature of love. Most of the stories that we hear or watch or read or see in our culture lie about the very nature of love. They say love is an intense feeling. No, it's not. Love is a, a deep attachment, romantic attachment, sexual. No, it's not. That's not what love is. Love is a choice. If love's a feeling, you can fall in and out of love. If love's a feeling, it is blind. But love's a choice. Choices aren't blind. It's a decision. And so, and it's really weird, but there's a number of men lately, as I call them on the phone, as I talk to them, Jesse Wells is one of them. And at the end of our phone conversations, almost every time, Jesse says, Pastor Bob, I love you. And it's really weird. I'm like, Jesse, I love you too. He's not family. He, he's, I'm not married to him, obviously. <laughs> right? But love, love is a decision to put someone else's needs above your own. That's what love is. And uh, in the Bible, it's often called loving kindness. In fact, the Bible defines love like this in 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. This could be called the patient principle. That's how we show love, by patience. Love is kind. That's the kindness principle. Love does not envy. The not envying principle. It does not boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Oof. I got to work on my love. It keeps no record of wrongs. Do you do that with your neighbors? With your coworkers? 
I remember. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This idea of hopes, I met with a man just this week. And he's separated. And things are hard in their marriage. And I believe it is a sin to not have hope. Because love always hopes. And a lack of hope means this. God can raise the dead. Jesus can walk on water. He can feed 5,000 hungry men with just a few loaves of bread and fish. But God is way too small and impotent and weak to change my spouse or me. To fix my marriage, I have no hope for it. Love always hopes. A lack of hope is sinful. It's also miserable. But in every situation, ask, what does love require of me? What, what, what does love require? Um, a lot of this is really culturally acceptable. But there is one aspect of love that is not acceptable in our culture. And, um, and that is the verbal part of love. Love speaks, love delights, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And, and are we speaking words of love? And this is where, you know, you, you can't have one without the other. You can't love God and love people. And that's because you can't be good at loving others if you don't love God because the greatest way to love others is to tell them about God. I, I haven't asked this question, I think, in about two years and I don't like this question. And it really bothers me because it, it clarifies my selfishness and lack of love. But here's the question. How badly do you have to hate someone to not tell them about Jesus? Without Jesus Christ, without his forgiveness, without surrendering your life to him, every single one of us goes to hell. How badly do you have to hate someone to not tell them how to avoid hell? And what we do many times, and there's this big lie in Christian culture, um, and relational evangelism, awesome. I am a, I am a proponent of it. I think it's awesome. You, you, you know, it, it is more effective. Love and words together, right? If you don't know anybody and it's a stranger on the street and you're telling them about Christ, that's words without love. And so relational evangelism is great, but many times it becomes an excuse. And we're all about the relationship. And we've had a relationship with someone and we've built a friendship for years. And we've never brought up Jesus. Well, because of relational evangelism. I just build in the relationship. Well, at some point, and here's the thing, the longer you go without telling a friend about Christ, the more awkward it becomes. Because it's like, what's changed? All of a sudden, you're doing this Jesus talk? This is a bait and switch? Like, you weren't like that before. I mean, from the very beginning, we need to love and truth, tell them. Because truth is loving. And, and so... We need to do this with our neighbors, with our friends, with our coworkers, with our classmates. And, and here's the selfishness part. It's just awkward. 
And awkwardness, for me to feel awkward for five minutes versus them in hell for eternity, what kind of a selfish pig am I that that's an actual debate in my head? You know, and and to say, well, I might lose that friend. To lose a friendship and a relationship for a few years versus someone going to hell for eternity? How self-focused is that? About me and my comfort. That's not love. And so we need to share with others. If you're here, and I'm talking to believers, so some of you are here and you're not ready to cross that line. You're, not, you're saying, you know, I'm partially in with Jesus, but I'm not ready to be all in. I'm not ready to commit my whole life and I'm not ready to surrender. I, I don't trust God yet. I, I, I you know, I, or maybe you think you don't need to be forgiven. That's pretty rare, but some people are like that. They, you think you're just really, really good. You don't need Jesus. You're good. But for those of you who've, who've repented of your sins and you said, man, I need Jesus to forgive me and I've made him the Lord of my life, this is our mission to do both, to love and to tell the truth. Words and deeds. It, and, and this is true with every other area of our lives. Like as a father, if, if a father loves through actions, right, he's working 12-hour days, you know, to, to, to provide for his family and, you know, his kids are sick. He's up all night with the kids throwing up and he's rubbing their back and, and he's doing all these loving actions, but he never tells his kids that he loves them verbally. He never encourages them with his mouth. He never uses words to tell them how important they are to him. Is he a great dad? He's not a great dad. He's not even a good dad. And his kids may very well grow up to hate him. Despite all those loving actions. A mom, the same way, man, she's cleaning up after them. And maybe she's working too and she's doing all this stuff. But if she never tells them that she loves them. See, we we know every area of our lives, you need actions, works, and words. We need both. And so we, we need to realize that that's true in our, our spiritual lives as well. It's exactly the same way. Um, and so on your seats, I want to encourage you to do this. We talk about pray, invest, invite. And so praying ahead of time and saying, God, you know, help me in this endeavor to love others and, and with words and with truth. Love in, in words and in deed. Um, and then you invest. That's the loving part. And then you invite. And this is not a, you pray for two years, you invest for another three, and then five years in, they move away and you never get a chance to invite them. Okay, this is not a, a progressive thing like that. This is, this is you do all this in the same day. Right? And, and I, you know, anyway, so, so these stickers, I'm just going to pick one. On the yellow ones, okay, I want you to write down the names of two people that don't know Jesus Christ or that aren't following Jesus. Maybe they are believers. We can't see their hearts, but they're not following him. And these are two individuals that you're going to pray for, that you're going to love in words, and that you're going to invite or, or talk to about Jesus, whether it's inviting them to church or inviting them to make a spiritual decision or inviting them to a Bible study or a small group you're doing or inviting them to whatever, but you're, you're saying, these two people, 
I'm going to pray, invest, and invite. And so I want you to write the same names, same two names on the yellow as you do on the red. I want you to take the yellow home. Okay, put it in your Bible, put it on your bathroom mirror, uh, put it on your refrigerator, put it, I, I don't care where you put it, but put it somewhere where you'll see it and pray for those two individuals. The other two, I want you to write the same names on the red ones and I want you to put it up on the wall. Okay, so the red names, don't put the whole name, okay? And if they got a weird name like Aloysius, McCary, okay, don't put Aloysius. Aloysius is a believer, so don't put him. But, but, um, but don't put that either. Put like A.M. or something like that, okay? So because if you invite them, you don't want to say, hey, what's this? Why is my name on that wall? <laughs> Might be awkward. Yeah, you can just explain it if that happens, but... But just, so this is not a, we don't want to embarrass anybody. We don't want to point anybody out to others. This is just a way that you can specifically say, I don't just love people. That, you can't love groups. I love him. I love her. And I am going to intentionally pray about and, and with words and with actions love that person in the weeks leading up to Easter. Because that, we are marked by love. So do that. So the yellow one is going home, right? i got to remember that. And the red one is before you leave, it's to the left of those lobby doors. There's this big, don't put it on the wall. There's this plexiglass or something. Put it on that so that we don't have to, you know, repaint the walls or something. So pray, invest, and invite. Why do we need to love others and to tell them about Jesus? Because we're going to sing a closing song in a moment because all we want and all we need is really found in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just uh, thank you that uh, you loved us first. And God, even thinking about this, it'd be nice if people just like walked up to us and and, uh, initiated, but, but love initiates. Help us to initiate. Help us to to take that first step to open a conversation, to, to, to do something helpful. Lord, help us to love our neighbors at work, our neighbors at school, our neighbors in our neighborhood. And God, just just use our feeble efforts, use our awkwardness, use our our falling down to to do something amazing, to, to change people's lives for all of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.